Welcome to the Climate Pelicans Brief, a podcast bridging the gap between climate science and Louisiana frontline communities. I'm Corinne Salter. And I'm Jill Tapitza. Join us as we disentangle environmental justice issues facing Louisiana using peer-reviewed science as well as the voices and lived experiences of community leaders. Our goals are to uplift activist platforms and raise awareness about the many environmental puzzles in Louisiana while contextualizing everything through the lens of climate crisis mitigation. LSU Climate Pelicans started as a passion venture by graduate students who wanted to build an interdisciplinary effort to advance climate justice, environmental justice, and social justice issues. We recognize that we are all united under the same struggles for justice in these areas, and we wanted to build a united front against climate change and the industries that perpetuate it. And Louisiana is the perfect place for this type of action to find its home. Pelicans represent resilience, embodying the joy of living in Louisiana and remaining resilient to many natural and man-made troubles we face in this coastal state. Climate Pelicans seeks to uplift frontline community voices and bring about real change in a state rich with culture and history, but inundated with industrial imposition and environmental injustice. Our work always keeps the fighting community central while empowering them with scientific and academic support for their efforts. The brown pelican, Pelicanus occidentalis, is the state bird of Louisiana, and it faced a major die-off between the 1950s to 1970s, but after the chemical DDT was banned from use in 1972, the mighty brown pelican made a strong comeback, and their population in Louisiana now has a conservation status of least concern. Our namesake is bent to honor our unique ecology and our people, which are both worth protecting. So going forward, our goals are to provide our listeners, no matter how much y'all currently know about climate science or environmental justice, with the tools to empower your own civic action. We will give you fodder for climate-related conversations with your family and friends, and we'll get you comfortable taking action like calling your reps, engaging in public comic periods, and getting involved with your local activist network. You'll get to hear conversations about frontline action from the voices of community leaders themselves, as well as scientific experts, policy experts, and academics whose work focuses on issues across the climate movement. Wherever you are right now, our goal is to help you help Louisiana not just survive the impacts of climate change, but thrive despite them. At the end of the day, it's our shared planet, so we must revel in this camaraderie that will unite us in this fight. So before we dive into all these amazing interviews and separate podcasts, we'd like to take a moment and introduce you to your co-hosts. Corinne, or as I know them, Corey, is an environmental justice researcher and fellow PhD student of mine. They founded the Climate Pelicans organization at LSU, which is how we initially met. Um, I joined the Climate Pelicans shortly after they started, and we met at a UNEP um, Corey organized this great, um, this great event with UNEP, the United Nations Environmental Program, and the goal was to take plastic out of this big boom, boom yeah. yeah, in a river, and um, basically go through the plastic and categorize it, and you know. It was a it was part of a greater project, and I it was my first Climate Pelicans event. And when I arrived at the event, um, I came in for like the afternoon shift. There was like a morning afternoon shift. Um, Corey wasn't there, but 
I hadn't met them before. So I just sort of like started working and hoping to meet them because I had heard so many good things about them. And um, I was told that she spilled like this rotten chicken noodle soup all over her. (laughs) You're like, oh yeah, she left because she spilled all this stuff. Like it just got out of control and spilled all on your shirt and got you all disgusting and whatever. And I had missed this like dramatic event. There were like maybe 50 people there, including the mayor of Baton Rouge. Sharon Broom. Sharon Broom. Love her. <laughs> um, so she was there and I arrived and just kind of got to work, started doing what I do. And Corey shows up later, freshly changed. <laughs> freshly showered. <laughs> yeah, freshly showered. And yeah, it was just great because I think that really speaks to Corey's resilience and perseverance through honestly really unpleasant situations. You show like anybody... I can't even stress to you how gross this chicken soup was described to me. Most people would have left and not come back, but she came not only for the morning shift, but then showed up again, fresh and clean, just like took care of business and came back um, all fresh and clean and ready to start and work for what, another three, four hours. So it was all in all a great event. And um, yeah, I think I've left you up. So let's just dive right into this interview. Thank you so much for the introduction, Jill. Honestly, like the way that you remember it is so different from the way that I remember it because I was mortified. (laughs) I was mortified with this nasty chicken substance on me. I don't even know what to call it. Chicken soup was like the best guesstimate of what I thought it could be. It really could have been anything after that point. But thank you. Chicken soup, not for the soul. (laughs) Not for the mind, body or soul. Yeah, chicken soup for the body is not good. No. (laughs) Um, Okay, great. So we're just going to start it off. So Corey, can you tell me a little bit about what your background is and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. So um, I started my career, or should I say like my academic career, specifically in criminal justice. Um, At the time, I thought I wanted to be an attorney. I thought I wanted to maybe work for... Um, environmental law, something that I thought I could go home at the end of the day and feel good about what I defended or who I defended Um, and not just feel like I was defending, you know, somebody who just had enough money to buy me as their attorney and like, you know, hire somebody that's good enough to get them out of something. So I really had this mind that I would be an environmental attorney and that um, I would protect the environment in that way. So all of my work, even though it was maybe more adjacent to environmental science. It almost all led up to this. Um, so now I'm in environmental science at um, LSU in my PhD program, and I'm focusing more on the planning and management aspect of it. Um, and so, yeah, just growing up in Louisiana, being so connected with the environment, being so like having a river in your backyard or your your backyard being considered a river. Um, I think it really gives you like an intricate relationship with the environment that you may not get in other more urban spaces where you don't have as much access to um to nature. And so that really um, fostered my love for the environment and my like my desire to protect it, especially being um, on the front line with, you know, so many hurricanes, so many natural disasters that happen, you know, flooding um, in Louisiana. So it was really important to me to like keep the environment central. Um, And whenever I started my program at LSU, I found out about this cool and interesting subfield of environmental science called environmental justice and I was like wow so I can merge you know my desires for justice and like law and policy 
um, from my undergrad, I can merge that with the environment and like create this beautiful thing that's actually like serving the people that are members of the communities that are impacted by environmental science and environmental devastation. I was like, hell yeah, sign me up for that. (laughs) Um, And so that's what really got me involved in it and finding out, you know, the ways in which not necessarily that our environment um, discriminates against people, but the way in which we regulate the environment that is discriminatory towards people. Um, I was like, you know what? I was fired up about it. And I said, I really need to do something about it. I'm from the Marshall Islands and I'm from Louisiana. I was born in the Marshall Islands, but I've grown up my entire life um, in the Baton Rouge area of Louisiana. And so I was growing up in basically two different frontline communities that are dealing with the impacts of climate change. And it really empowered me to do something about it because it's like, no matter what part of my history I trace back, I'm still intricately, um, entangled with climate change and with the impacts of it. And so I was like, well, instead of run away from it, I might as well do something about it. And <laughs> and so, you know, that was really a big reason why I started Climate Pelicans was to be able to connect academia, which I feel like can be so disconnected from the frontline communities, um, not necessarily intentionally because of the people, but just because sometimes we tend to live in our bubbles where we, you know, study the things that are that our advisors tell us to study or our PIs tell us to study. And so um, a lot of times we can lose the fact that we're also serving people with our science. Like we're still, like our science isn't, is not ever going to be apolitical. It's going to be connected to people in some way. And so that's really like my drive behind this. Um, And my work specifically focuses on permitting processes for environmental justice communities. So um, throughout the permitting process, which is basically different industrial facilities have to get certain permits um, according to the different acts of um, the United States. You have to get a certain permit to be able to um, release certain emissions into certain areas. So that can be hazardous waste permitting, um, water permits, and air permits. So those things have to be provided before the industry is able to start their business. And um, where are these industries located? Where are they releasing these emissions? That's all very important to the permitting process. And the community is supposed to have an input on this um, during the public comment period where they're supposed to be able to say, hey, we don't really want this facility in our backyard. um, So we would really like it if you don't get the permit. We Here are our reasons. Um, But what we see is that a lot of times environmental justice communities don't have the same clout or the same weight within their say that a lot of more um, affluent communities that aren't designated as environmental justice communities have. And so my work is just trying to bring light to that and trying to bring that into the scientific space that, hey, you know, um, environmental justice communities maybe need to be considered in different ways throughout our permitting process because they're bearing the burden of it, but also at the same time, their say doesn't equal as much. So that's what my work focuses on. Um, and yeah, it's it's really exciting. <laughs> I love that you just, it just gives off so much passion. Like you totally approach your, your work as a passion project. And I love that although you're under the Department of Environmental Sciences at LSU, your work is very interdisciplinary and like brings not only your own background, um, but also all these other elements, like your love for nature and the environment, your um, your background at the Marshall Islands, as well as a resident of Louisiana your whole life, and um, just like your passion for justice, for the human and the social aspect of 
environment's justice. And I love what you, that you're doing what you're doing. And I would love to ask you a follow-up question, which is um, how does environmental justice differ in Louisiana versus in other states? So the way that I feel like it differs in Louisiana is that there are, there's such a diversity of people in Louisiana that you're not always going to get in other places. Like even just our coastal Native American communities, our coastal um, tribes that we have here, those are going to be completely different than the tribes that are in any other place in the United States because it's so close to the Gulf of Mexico. Like they've had to find a way of living that revolves around water and revolves around the frontline disasters and hazards that can take place being so close to the coast. So just that alone differs like greatly from the experiences of any other state. But also I think that with water, one of the things that I love to say is that water is both in Louisiana, should I say, um, water is both our best friend and can be our worst enemy because a lot of times like water is how we congregate. Water is how we make our homes. Water is how we bring food to the table. Water is how we teach our kids. Like it's a playground for a lot of kids as well. Like whenever I was growing up, my aunt would come and pick us up off the river and she would take us out on the boat and we would just go and park the boat somewhere and just jump off and go swimming in the river. Now we can't really do that because of all of the many flesh eating bacteria and brain eating amoeba that's <laughs> currently in our rivers. Um, I also grew up by a river and we were, to- we were never allowed in it. <laughs> like, okay, well, it's gross. Like they found, I think, like three eyed. Heaven knows what. Oh in there. my goodness. Frogs and stuff. The Potomac River. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you understand. <laughs> um, so, you know, like water is just like, it's such a, um, it's so integral to Louisiana culture and to Louisiana life. And so like knowing that and knowing the ways in which water is also taking away our land because of climate change and because of the U.S.'s inaction against it, um, I think that there's a lot of work to do. And so I think that Louisiana is just like a perfect place to show that, hey, there's a lot of community resilience and there's a lot of people here that despite being located so deep south and knowingly, like we all know that we get hit by hurricanes every year, they're getting worse. And there's a group of people that want to adapt in place and they want to continue to call Louisiana home. So I just think that the culture of Louisiana just separates it from every every other place. I love that you bring Louisiana culture into this conversation. I can't wait to dig deeper in later podcasts and really bring that into the conversation in ways that it just doesn't apply the same way in other places. Like you, Louisiana is just so unique in that. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. So, so what does environmental climate justice mean to you in your life? I know you touched it on a little bit, but if you have anything else that you wanted to say about what it means in your own life. Yeah, for sure. So environmental justice to me, knowing that my family is entirely here, um, pretty much just like everybody that I know, everybody that I grew up around is from Louisiana, almost except for the people that I've met throughout grad school. And so knowing that environmental and climate justice to me means equity. It means equity of voice, equity of platform, equity of contribution to what happens and how we go forward in the fight against climate change. Like there should be equitable say from the community members that are dealing with the burden of climate change and the impacts and the fact that we haven't 
like that the U.S. hasn't really done much against it, done much to basically um, prohibit the unfettered industrial inundation in places like Louisiana. I think that there should be equity of the ability for like these frontline communities to speak up for themselves and be heard. We should be represented and we should have an equal say to where whenever we say, hey, we don't want these industries in our backyard, we should be able to prevent them from being in our backyard. We shouldn't still see them in our backyard despite so much effort of the public to push them out. So I think that places like Louisiana, especially the communities that are often forgotten and marginalized, like the environmental justice communities, they should be the ones that should be uplifted and maybe at the front line of the conversations because they are on the front lines of the burden of what comes from it. So, And so like what specifically made you take action from that? Like, um, the way you describe it, it's like, it feels impossible for you not to take action after having these thoughts. But was there like any specific moment in time or like trigger for you that made you say like, hey, I've got to do this? <laughs> um, yeah. So like I think something that we hear a lot in the climate change movement um, is climate anxiety. So like it's this anxiety that, you know, this is happening and it feels like nobody's doing anything to stop it. And you just get this overwhelming anxiety from it because it just feels like it just feels so overwhelming and just like such a heavy thing for us to have to take on. But I felt almost like a step further than that. Like, you know, every single year, these hurricanes get worse and worse. And we're starting to see things like tornadoes in New Orleans, which we've never seen before. Um, you know, it's always these disasters have always been something that's that I've been very involved in. Like, growing up, we had Hurricane Katrina, we had so many different hurricanes more than I can name, like Gustav, Ike, um, just different ones that just impacted us in so many different ways. And seeing like the the turmoil of people losing everything and having to be helicopter like be picked up by a helicopter to be taken away from their home which is like completely submerged yeah it's it's an experience that i think that a lot of people don't really see or at least they don't see it from like the perspective of hey my grandmother is like my like my 90 year old grandmother was at the Superdome being sheltered because she was in an evacuation zone and she literally was sitting outside because they couldn't bring dogs in and she was sitting outside and passed out from heat exhaustion because of how like severe the the heat was and she was older and just like the over like the overpopulation of those shelter areas like it becomes like it almost becomes a united issue and in a way like these types of things as terrible and devastating as they are and I'm definitely not taking away from that it almost unites us under a certain cause like because not everybody is going to know what it's like to go through a hurricane and have to sit and hold the fort down and keep your trees from flying off and things like that because you're getting hit by such a barrage of these things like no one else is going to understand that except for the people of places like Louisiana and I think that that it it unites us in a way like it unites us in the grief in the shared grief that we have the shared trauma of going through these things but despite that being a trauma i think it also points out to us like how like how closely related we are to the environment and how we should do something to protect it because um it's been our home for this long so like we might as well do something to protect it at this point 
Absolutely. It's such a personal issue. And I love hearing like the very personal stake that you have in it. And I've like, I'm not from Louisiana, but the vibe that I've gotten from my several years here is that it is a united, it's such a united place. Like people take care of their neighbors. They come together in their grief. Um, they help out after storms and stuff. It's like, it's an environment that I have never been in before it's so unique and I feel like that gets passed up a lot in the media which I think is where most people who are outside the state are getting their information about these things absolutely because like things like the Cajun Navy that couldn't exist anywhere else love the Cajun Navy shout out to the Cajun Navy (laughs) they're awesome you know like they do so much to help the community and it's like literally just by word of mouth like if your cousin happens to have cell service which like tell me which cell provider they're using because I never have cell service after these things. <laughs> um, but yeah, if your cousin happens to have cell service and they happen to know somebody from the Cajun Navy or they know a friend of a cousin of somebody who's in the Cajun Navy, then best believe if you have something going on at your house, they're going to come and help you out. I volunteered with them a couple of times yeah. and it, it is such a word of mouth. It's crazy. It it's is. like taking advantage of like the great Southern gossip fine, but in the best way. Yeah. They're like delivering supplies to these random people were like we were just given a list they were like yeah they you know some like a cousin of a friend or whatever like they have a baby at home so let's go give them some diapers and stuff and it's just like wow people really take care of each other and that's what I love about Louisiana is that it's just so homegrown and so our fight is going to be a homegrown fight like it's going to be something that you know your mama and your auntie all take issue with and we all unite together because you know we all care about our state we're from here we love it and we're not going anywhere Love that. And speaking of your mama and your auntie, um, who do you do this for? Like where you like in your research and your I mean, not just this podcast, but like your research and like your drive in life. Like, who do you do that for? Well, like just honestly, like one of the main things that I always say is that one day I want to be a professor and I want like a little girl or a little non-binary person to walk into class, into one of the classes that I'm teaching and see me teaching it and be like, you know what? They were able to do it. I can too. Love that. And so I want to create an environment that fosters young people like that, that may not, you know, be even necessarily scientifically inclined just to know that, hey, this is an interdisciplinary fight that we're in and we're we all have something to contribute. Our intersectionality is our superpower. It's our it's what's going to help us have a different perspective than anybody else in the field. So whenever I go into these spaces, even as much as they're overwhelming and I sometimes like feel that imposter syndrome, um, I just enter them and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go in. I'm going to say what I have to say, because it might be something that these people who have been studying the same things their entire life, they may not have ever even heard my perspective ever once in their life, despite studying it for their entirety of their careers. And so I think that voices that are intersectional, like mine, not to toot my own horn, but you know, do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that they're very needed. And I'm hoping that the next person after me that may be inspired by the things that I do, I'm hoping that their voices are even more intersectional than mine are. And then, you know, They'll have something that's even unique to my ears, even. I love that you mentioned intersectionality as like your superpower. And you have so many other superpowers that I want to touch on here. But like, that's just such a big one. And I love it. And we're being now visited by one of my dogs, Stella, who you may hear in the background. She is giving kisses to faces and microphones. And so sorry if the feedback is bad. But um, so it's more than you could know. Um, Like you're just always noticed when you when you walk in, everybody like 
listens They're because like, and that's what they should weirdo. do <laughs> because you have so much to offer but speaking of superpowers um what are your superpowers as a human like not necessarily related to your direct profession yeah so i feel like one of my superpowers that i'm most proud of is my personability like my ability to be able to just pick up a conversation with anybody and just you know get to know them on a very personal level that I think sometimes it might throw people off I'm like tell me about everything about you I just want to hear it all <laughs> been on the receiving end of this <laughs> yes it's great so you know firsthand um so yeah I just really love getting to know people getting to know their stories and just I don't know just finding ways in which we we can relate more than like more than you know what might meet the eye like they might meet me and be like oh I have nothing in common with this person but you know I feel like we can all find some sort of united thing that we have in common that just brings us together more than we ever would have imagined and so I don't know I just really enjoy getting to getting to know that about people and having that opportunity to do so. Yeah, I've seen this in action so many times, just not even (laughs) only on the receiving end. And I can't wait to dive into anecdotes when appropriate, (laughs) when you're least expecting it later in time. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So that's a warning. I can vouch for this superpower of personability. It's like very overwhelming in the best way. Um, So that's your superpower. What what brings you joy in general? Oh, wow. So like as an extrovert... As an ENFP. Love the ENFP. <laughs> Side note, we are both ENFPs. If you couldn't tell. <laughs> We're literally doing a podcast together on the climate change, on climate crisis in Louisiana. So I think we're definitely ENFPs. We're very ENFPs. <laughs> um, yeah. So like what brings me joy, honestly, is just having a message and being able to stand up for that message. Like just I don't know just feeling so empowered to the point that I'm able to like speak up and speak my truth and not even just do it for me but do it for other people that I feel like um I'm representing like that honestly brings me so much joy I don't know something about it just you know feeling heard and feeling like I'm being heard from people that actually care to hear what I have to say and hear my story and hear what I care about and my passions that honestly brings me so much joy whether it's like through teaching or through just having a nice conversation with some random person at a bar like who knows you know I could just tell them my entire life story and they're just engaged so much and I'm just like I love this it gives me so much power (laughs) that is amazing you have so much joy um thank you so just to a couple more questions here before we wrap up this interview. Um, what are one or two things that you would change locally in Louisiana to better the environment? Oh, wow. So like, like a couple of like simple or not so simple changes. So like locally in Baton Rouge, in the Baton Rouge area? Anywhere in Louisiana. Okay. I'll open it up to the whole state. All right. Um. So honestly, well specifically at LSU, I wish that they were more beholden to their student body over... I'm nodding. (laughs) Over their shareholders. Um, (laughs) No, say it loud and proud. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we're a public institution, and I think that LSU, knowing the culture of LSU throughout Louisiana and how important purple and gold is to the community members um, 
that are surrounding LSU, like you don't even have to be from the Baton Rouge area to know that LSU LSU shirts are basically a uniform no matter where you go throughout the state it's going to be accepted anywhere like it's not just something that you wear during like the seasons whenever they're having a good season you wear it year round and you wear it very proudly and so for our community members to be so proud of LSU I wish that LSU was more beholden to them and I wish that LSU invested in the people that invest in them like that come out and they buy season passes to the football games and they show up for all the events that go on at LSU and they listen to the president's podcast I wish that those people were the ones that were being represented and their best interests were being more represented more so than the random foreign companies that just happen to spend the most money yeah the operative word being beholden to the people not the companies that invest in them and have like these really weird toxic relationships with them so i love that very local very applicable um so lsu if you're listening put it on your checklist (laughs) so not a big thing to ask for you know it's so easy like just transparency yeah okay i'm not gonna pop off but (laughs) we have opinions about this we Um, have plenty of time for popping off. so we'll have a whole one dedicated to that absolutely um but yeah absolutely that's really good um so last question here as a person from louisiana as you said you were born in the marshall islands but you've lived in louisiana for most of your i wanted to say conscious adult life conscious for most of your life as a human <laughs> i was just you, unconscious you were just marshall. what like the, what's that time like when you're born and you don't really you're not really like aware of your surroundings like you can't remember yeah. those like your first memories when mm-hmm. you're that you can remember as an adult it's like young but not baby so it's like cognitive okay let's say you're cognitive stages i don't know yeah <laughs> all right so from your young cognitive stage you have been a resident of Louisiana. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so formal. Um, so what makes you invested for the fight for environmental issues here? I mean, fight against environmental issues here. Yeah, so um, I really was thinking about this, you know, leading up to, the, to this interview. Um, and I wanted to say it in a way that holds true to my experience because you know, as a person of color, um, I have two moms. I grew up, you know, pretty poor as well, you know, living off the river. Um, I didn't always feel represented by Louisiana, um, but I'm from here. And despite all of that, what I found that I love about Louisiana and the reason that I'm staying here is that I don't love Louisiana for what it is. I love it for what I believe it can be. And so as long as I hold true to my vision for Louisiana and the vision that I think is the most equitable and, um, has the best interests of all the people of Louisiana, all the residents here and to come for Louisiana, then I think that that's what matters. And that's what invests me in the fight is that I believe that Louisiana can be better than what it is today. And I'm willing to fight for that. That's amazing. And I'm just like so excited to have you as a co-host of this podcast. So thank you for your open and honest answers. And I'm joined today by Jill, my friend and marine ecologist. She's a PhD candidate at LSU, and she has honestly been the driving force behind our LSU Climate Pelicans divestment campaign, encouraging LSU to divest from fossil fuels. Um, She's just honestly mobilized our little community in a way that is just um, 
irreplaceable and honestly just has been such energy behind our movement and I'm very grateful for her. So we're going to be talking a little bit about her passions and her drive and what gets her up every morning to do the work of Climate Pelicans. Um, so hi, Jill. You're making me blush. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. Um, so I'm just going to be asking you a little bit about yourself um, and getting to know like what makes you tick, what what drives you to do all this work, all the awesome work that you're doing. So Hit me um, with it. Of course. So, <laughs> so we're going to start off with um, what do you do? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, like I was wonderfully introduced, I am an LSU PhD candidate in the Department of Oceanography and Coastal Sciences, and um, my path there was, uh, so I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, which is a pretty big metropolitan area just south of Washington, D.C., and um, from there I did my bachelor's degree in environmental science and chemistry at the University of Virginia, and then I took a couple years off before graduate school and moved to San Francisco where I did an AmeriCorps term of service for a year and then I worked for an environmental analytical chemistry company um, as an analyst and a chemist there and then I um, started my PhD program in fall 2019 at LSU in my current department. So I work for Dr. Cassie Glassfee in the Marine Community Ecology Lab, and my work is marine ecology. So more specifically, I'm a benthic ecologist, which refers to things like crabs and clams and anything that lives um, under the water on the seafloor. So that's what I study. Um, more specifically, I study Louisiana coastal estuaries. So right at the cusp of the Gulf of Mexico, where the Gulf of Mexico meets the land, there's a whole bunch of estuaries in the southern part of Louisiana. And I study the local ecology in that area. Um, and my specific project refers to this big uh, restoration project that's forthcoming. They're called the Sediment Diversions. We'll definitely get in more detail in a later podcast about them. But basically, they are reconnecting the Mississippi River to sur the surrounding wetlands to build them back. And my big questions are, how does the benthic community, so those little shrimp and crabs and everything that people around Louisiana love so much, um, how um, is that diversion project going to impact that community? So that's my big, my big question. That's and awesome. yeah, like I said, I'm also involved in climate pelicans and it's been a ride. Yeah. So like you're really intricately um, inter twined with a lot of what's important to Louisiana, you know, the coastal environments and like those types of ecosystems, um, estuaries, like you said, things like clams and crabs, like those are also important to Louisiana culture. Um, so I guess my next question for you would be, since you've lived around different parts of the U.S., um, how does the issue of environmental justice differ with your experience in other states? How does it differ in Louisiana from those other states? I feel like in Louisiana, it is such a more personal, environmental justice is such a more personal community level issue. I know it's that way in a lot of different places, but I think in Louisiana, well, I don't think the data shows that there are fewer people in Louisiana than any other places that I've lived before yeah. because I've been mostly in major cities. Um, and Louisiana is just, 
it's just so much more community driven. It's more grassroots. Um, and so, and plus the environmental impacts here, I think they hit Louisiana first before they hit any other place. Um, the impacts that we're going to see from climate change, um, the restoration progress that we have going on right now in Louisiana, it's happening here first before anywhere else. And I feel like Louisiana is a testing ground for a lot of different practices that we can take to fight back against those climate change impacts, whereas other places are, and they rightly should be, planning for the eventuality. In in Louisiana, it's happening here. It's happening right now um, in a way that I think doesn't get shared globally yeah. quite as much. So it's so important here, and it's so important to understand that the impacts aren't like, oh, when we hit 1.5 degrees Celsius, they're happening right now with increased severity and duration of storms as well as like sea level encroachment, all those nasty things that are coming at us. Yeah, like Louisiana definitely, I guess in that way, is almost like a cautionary tale, but we're not at the point where, you know, we can't do anything about it. Like we're, there's still so much that we can do and so much that we can do to fight back against it. And um, I'm really excited that, you know, you're in the same fight as I am and that we're doing this together. <laughs> Absolutely. And I just want to like say something about the intersectionality of it as well. It just it dovetails with so many other issues so in such a way that you can't ignore down right. here. So I yeah. feel like it's it's the ground zero. Absolutely. And I'm happy to be here. I'm glad you're here. So glad. And all of Louisiana. I speak for all of Louisiana and saying that we're all that's glad. That's way too kind. I can name a person or two or an oil company or two that's not so happy to have me around. Well, you know what? The rest of Louisiana may not be so happy to have them around. So there's that. Um, okay. Well, that's, that's really awesome. I'm glad that you were able to share that. Um, so with all that being said, what does environmental and climate justice mean to you and to your life? So this for me means I, when I come when climate justice and environmental justice are brought up, um, justice is just something that we we can't get it for everybody until everybody's on board, right? And we've seen this with so many other intersectional issues, but environmental issues specifically, I feel like it can be um, sometimes harder. But for me, that means like harnessing collective action that we have as human beings. And that just like, it brings me so much joy to have people come together and not just like operate in their own circles. When they do something good, they decide to share it with other people in a joyful way. And I think that that is really great. Um, I also, uh, what it means for me on like a big level, just in terms of like ca cutting carbon emissions and how we do that, when I think about what I want to focus in terms of environmental and climate justice, um, I'm really drawn to pursuing a just transition from fossil fuels. And what I mean by that is like the we've been relying on these fossil fuel companies mm -hmm. for ages, like since the Industrial Revolution, yeah. pretty much. And they've just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more powerful. And they are so big and powerful, particularly in Louisiana, because they they're just more there's not enough people physically in Louisiana to fight them off. This is just where they've kind of set up camped and they've, they've invaded. Um, and so our, the only way that we can move forward as a society um, and not just succumb to these impacts of climate change is to 
transition off of that fossil fuel as a resource for how we get our energy and transition into a more renewable source, not just a more renewable source, but actually renewable energy. And I'm really passionate about um, making that a just transition for everybody who's currently in the workforce because there's where this podcast is for people in Louisiana, but I recognize that the um, the reality of that is that a lot of people here, not as many as they would like you to think, but there are a good amount of people in Louisiana who are employed by the oil and gas industry because that's just the job that's available. And right. I think um, making it a just transition from soup to nuts, like from when we were planning for things like unions and making sure that workers are being provided for, being paid well, being prioritized, um, safety is a priority, really just making that um at the center of this renewable energy transition. Absolutely. And I love that you say that specifically because I think that a lot of um, Louisiana's like hesitancy to fight against these oil companies, these oil and gas companies, is that maybe their dad or maybe their uncle or maybe somebody that they know is employed by these companies. And I think that it's really helpful to see somebody that not only cares about the fight for environmentalism and against these companies, but also cares for the workers that maybe just had no choice but to be employed by that. Because unfortunately, um, there are a lot of people that are employed by these companies that, you know, may just like hesitate to say, hey, I believe in climate change even because of the fact that their entire livelihood is driven by these companies. And that's not to say that these companies are giving them any like handouts or doing them any favors because they're absolutely not. Cause we see a lot of times um, the communities where these facilities are placed, they don't really have the same employment levels that other communities have. So it's very inequitable in that way too. But I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I think that um, workers rights are very like intricately intertwined with the environmental justice movement too like it can't just be you know only the people that care about environmentalism or the people that consider themselves environmentalists that are at the forefront of these fights it has to also be the people that are living here the residents the people that work and congregate here it has to be it has to come from within yes exactly exactly so i'm really glad that you mentioned that um and so with that being said speaking about people um what like who do you do this for like in your mind what who is the person or who are the people that make you have this passion for environmentalism and like you know the climate change movement I'm definitely motivated by people who are marginalized by this issue and like I'll be honest, that's not really specific to me and my background. Um, I don't have like the poignant upbringing that you do have. Um, So it is a little bit less personal um, to me. Like I don't have ties to any of these communities really. But um, I really, I am just, I really hate injustices. Like it just really grates me to my core. And so I really feel for these communities that have been swamped honestly by these companies and have been kept poor by these companies on purpose and and I just I don't really want to live in a world where I'm letting that stand it's just one of those things where you know they say if you are see something in the world and you don't like it and you don't see anybody changing it that means that it's your job to change it that's kind of been my mantra through this but I also kind of do it for the ecosystems because at my root I am a big science nerd and I really love nature I have a great connection with Mm -hmm. it and so I kind of see animals as my 
progeny and I just I love them so much as I say lovingly Aww. looking at my dog <laughs> <laughs> yes. so yeah so protecting not just humans but um animals big and small they all have feelings guys even yeah. the little worms that I study right so, yeah. just because they don't speak our language and they can't represent themselves in the same way does not mean that they should have any less rights exactly they yeah. don't really get to join this fight they're just exactly. kind of I mean they're they're marginalized by yes. it yes <laughs> yes I'm I'm in it for the little guys wow okay I'm so glad that you say that because like honestly um knowing that you're not from Louisiana and knowing how passionate you are like feeling like I have somebody that is just as empowered to fight against this as I am like me being from Louisiana and you not even really like having the same stake in it I just I think that that makes you all the more like of a powerhouse because you are just doing it because it's what's right to do and I, that is just so commendable and so admirable oh shucks <laughs> <laughs> so um you know living in Louisiana and I guess like I said, having that experience f around different states in the country, um, what are some things that you see in Louisiana locally that you would want to change for the better of the environment? That's a great question. And I have a couple of answers to it. One is like more broad and the other one's like more um, specific. Yeah. So the first one is I think that in general to change the environment, we need to change how we view the environment. And I think that's... Um, there's just a different way that Louisianans view their environment. Yeah. I mean, not everyone in Louisiana feels this way. I don't want to speak for everybody, but like the general idea, I think, um, is that Louisiana is this like very resourceful place. It's this like plethora of natural resources and oil is seen as like the most valuable one. And it's very different from somebody who lives, say, in Washington State or Oregon. And it's like, you know, people go and they visit like Mount Rainier or these other beautiful wonders in the world. And it's just like, oh, this is a beautiful ecosystem. We have to preserve it. We have to yeah. we have to hike it and admire it for its beauty. But here it's just... I mean, not only has it been set up as a sacrifice zone, um, but I think people just cons can consistently view it as just this place that has a lot to offer us rather than this place that's beautiful on its own. And it honestly is beautiful. Like I am not from here, but the first time I saw the marsh, I was overtaken. Yeah. It is beautiful and it it's is majestic. lush. It really is yeah. when you go over like, uh, lake Pontchartrain, mm -hmm. first thing in the morning and you see that mist rising yes. off of the lake and you see just like this eerie fog across the landscape and you see just like marsh plants coming out yeah. and you see ghost forests and like just the cypress trees it's just so overwhelmingly beautiful and i think just shifting the collect collective focus from this environment has so much to give us to look at this beauty all around us why wouldn't we want to fight for it um, I think is the first like broad step to changing things in Louisiana. Um, the things that I really want to see like implemented locally, well, not locally, but like actually everywhere globally, mm -hmm. if I'm being perfectly honest, but <laughs> definitely in Louisiana, I think we need more of a focus here is investing in that just renewable energies transition. So getting us off of fossil fuels for good and moving to renewables like wind and solar and a few other little things that are used to supplement that. Um, and while doing that, also electrification. So I think I just want to explain something really quick here sure. because I'm in interview mode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but just to like to because we're going to dig into this a little bit more um, in a future podcast. But we, as we transition off of fossil fuels, we need to electrify the grid. 
we need to expand and bolster our already like kind of tenuous energy grid like you know how mm-hmm. the power goes out all the time yeah. like even when there's no storm whenever happening. there's like a whistle in the wind yeah <laughs> whenever there's a whistle in the wind it just you know your lights flicker or it goes yeah. out or in some cases you lose power for like four days and you have to take a polar shower in the middle of the winter <laughs> you know we've all been through it but here in louisiana our power grid is like there's it leaves something to be desired so we need to bolster that grid to handle all of the power that would otherwise be spent um just by burning fossil fuels as a non-point source so like driving we are driving and your gas tank is um burning and you're kind of just burning these fossil fuels instead of charging at one point and then moving around so electrifying will cut down emissions even if the original power source is from fossil fuels by 30 percent wow just from that alone so and it also sets us up to be able to make that transition because you cannot really like strap a solar panel to your car like a wind turbine to your car and like expect it to work like we've been down that road and it didn't really work so um we'll get more into that in detail but like that's a thing that i think is it's probably going to change locally. And I think we need to be making that push to keep it, keep the momentum where it is right now. Absolutely. So stay tuned for our future episodes, which will be featuring more (laughs) of this passion and more of this like empowered talk from Jill about electrification. Um, So with that being said, um, we're just going to talk a little bit more personally. So, what would you consider to be your superpower? My superpower. Um, I have one like really eerie superpower and that is the ability to age dogs. I can tell what a dog's <laughs> age is. <laughs> this is like a, not a useful superpower, but. So niche, a fun party trick. Right, a fun party trick. Like yeah. I'm not even kidding. I It's like, I'm really, I don't want to toot my own horn, but like, I'm really good at it. You give me a puppy and I'll be like, is that like a seven and a half week old dog? And people are like, how did you know that? How did you know? Um, I don't know. I'm just really good at it. Um, I did, uh, my first job was at an animal hospital. I was mm. not trained specifically to do this, but I think it probably enabled me to develop that superpower so i'm really good at aging dogs um but like probably a more realistic one is that i'm really good at getting into trouble (laughs) i like it just sort of finds me that's why you're the head of our divestment campaign we need trouble we need to trouble the waters of lsu and their tricky connections with the fossil fuel industry tricky trickers yeah yeah i appreciate that because not a lot of people do i feel like i have sort of stepped into this role as the person who stirs the pot and honestly that's what i came here for so i'm i'm fine with it but it's been a recent talent that i'm trying to hone a little bit like when to stir when to simmer to lean into it yeah Yeah. because i love that because honestly i feel like you're a very powerful person and the fact that you're using your power for good is just so like kudos honestly i'm so proud of you (laughs) i sound like i'm like you know you're fluffing me up (laughs) you know like how you feel whenever you like meet a girl in the bathroom and you're like i just met you i just met you and you are the most beautiful thing i've ever met and you are going to grace the world with your presence 
you're like, I just met this person, but you just become besties, you know? <laughs> oh That's how I feel about you. You are perpetually the girl in the bathroom. I feel that way about you. I think we've both said this exact thing to each yes. other in a bathroom yeah. at some point. It's always in Multiple the bathroom, times. right? Yeah, it just happens. <laughs> like, you're the one who gives me a ponytail and that I really needed because my hair was all in my face the whole night, and you just give me a ponytail holder, and I'm just like you are the you are god's gift to the earth <laughs> you are the provider of all things your enfp is showing yes <laughs> you're just the best thing Absolutely. ever <laughs> all right so speaking of all these things i feel like this conversation has brought me so much joy and you know just being able to hear about you know your drive and your just your personality in all of this uh shining through your environmentalism and your push for climate change action um i've just heard like so much joy in your voice about just being able to talk about this so with that being said um what brings you joy just generally or related to environmentalism like what brings you joy throughout this I keep a long list of things that bring me joy because I feel that. that, right? Yeah, yeah. it's kind of like a gratitude thing, but it's also just like a, you know, sometimes you need that little extra push in, yeah. in the day. Like our field, you're just kind of, I mean, I love my job and stuff. Like I really can't say enough good things about it. Right. But at the end of the day, it is like every day you wake up and you're faced with this, um, we're battling this crazy incoming climate change and a lot of the time i'm gonna be perfectly honest it doesn't look great for us as humans and so it's good i think to keep a list of these things to kind of perk me up a little bit over my morning coffee and i will enlighten you a few things on that list i love my dogs both of whom are sitting behind me being very good girls um iggy and stella shout out to y'all so sweet (laughs) they're being so good they bring me so much joy um gardening brings me joy running brings me joy um birds that run you know, like a like a nice grouse or like a nice quail. And what I mean by birds that run, I just get such a kick out of them. You know, like they're instead of, you know, they see something coming. If you're a bird, the natural reaction is to take off in this like lovely, elegant way, like a pelican might. Yeah. But instead, there are certain birds that are just like, ah, and they just like run <laughs> panicked. And it's so funny to me. It just brings me a lot of joy. So can you I, relate in any way? Like, do you feel like whenever your fight or flight kicks in, you just like you're like, ah. Yeah, it is that thing. Do we all have that where it's like, I'm choosing to run away from my problems instead of use my use what I have, which is wings Wings. or like whatever superpower or whatever you have in your situation to get you out of that. Instead, you just like freak out and run away. Just run. So yeah, I never really thought about that. I don't know. Like, is that relatable? But maybe that's why I like it so much. Maybe so. But it might just be because it's really funny. No, I've seen that before and it cracks me up. Yeah, it's good, right? Like, especially the quails with the little like thing in their head. Um, (laughs) um, So that brings me joy. I love to scuba dive, which is something that I get to do sometimes as a marine ecologist. So, you know, among all the science and math and weird stuff that I have to do that sometimes does not always bring me joy. um, Diving and getting to like observe the ecosystems that I'm studying is a big perk, big job perk. Um, But honestly, I'm really obsessed with science, like a really elegant experiment or like a data set that just comes together really nice like oh gives me a little kick love that that's right i'm just like (laughs) (laughs) um but on like a more serious note i am also an enfp which a lot of um myers-briggs personality um resources will tell you that that's like the campaigner personality which i think says a lot about us and like we're being in the right place Mm -hmm. um but i just love to 
be the person who is that person in a group of people that came out a little weird but that's okay <laughs> we can cut that um so i just love seeing people defy odds and come together collectively um in optimism to do the right thing i think that just like that. gives me like a soul level joy that i can really just linger on i love that yeah. and so i particularly love li- li- love li- living in louisiana because of that because like you talked about earlier we are kind of like united in this front against climate change impacts people come together after storms major events like it's just a very unifying process and i i like collective action it like gives me a lot of joy so i love that because at the end of the day we are each other's neighbors and we have honestly like a duty to each other to be good to each other and to whenever one person has an issue we all take issue with it and i love that (laughs) (laughs) okay so um wrapping it up um i guess what we could finally just like you know hear from you is just as a person not from louisiana what makes you invested in the fight in louisiana for the environmental justice issues that we have here yeah so like I've said, um, I'm not from Louisiana. I'm from Virginia, near the Washington D.C. area, and I um, I don't have any. I don't have like an actual physical personal stake here. But the places that I've lived are have been larger, like physically bigger cities. They tend to be more progressive, um, particularly about climate change, but also on other issues. And so I feel like I've just sort of fantasized my whole life. I really started this plan when I was like 14 <laughs> because I realized all the injustices that were happening here to the environment, to the people. And I was like, someone's got to do something about this. Yeah. And I don't think I'm going to come here and just sweepingly change everything. But I think that um, I do bring like a fresh perspective and some enthusiasm from the places that I've come before where they have solved a lot of the issues yeah. that are still plaguing Louisiana. Um, so I'm really here to just like put a stop to the toxic relationship between Louisiana and the petrochemical companies that try to own the state. And I feel like a lot of people think that's nuts here, but honestly, anywhere outside of Louisiana, it doesn't sound so nuts. Like it sounds pretty rational and it yeah. is really rational. But here I can't tell you how many people have been like, are you off your, like, are you out are you your off mind? your rocker? Are you off your, you're right. That's what they would say. Are you off your rocker? <laughs> um, so I'm just like, I'm ready to, to do that. And I think I'm the right person. Well, everybody's the right person, but yeah. you know, I'm, I think I'm where I need to be. And there are so many problems here that are honestly really big. I won't even go through all of them. That's why we have the podcast. We're going to go through all of them one by one. Um, But here, there are many of them that are tough and are really hard to solve and take a lot of thought and tricky effort and finagling and sometimes money. Like, and there are so many problems that don't. There are so many problems that are an easy fix. And I just don't think Louisiana has sometimes the willpower or the the human capital to like make it happen. And so uh, there's just like a lot of climate low hanging fruit that I think um, somebody from an outside area can come in and be like, oh, well, in San Francisco, this is what their climate action plan said. And here's how they went about dealing with it. Whereas here, they're kind of just like, I mean, we do have a climate action plan in Louisiana. First in the Gulf South, air horns. (laughs) But like, (laughs) we'll dig into why it's like maybe not enough. Um, So here, problems seem really big to wrap up. But they're solvable, and I'm excited to be part of the fight and work closely with people who have a more integrated perspective of, like, why we're doing what we're doing in Louisiana. 
I love that. And I think that you're you're right. You are just the right person to be coming in and doing this. We are all the right people. But honestly, like you bring such a unique perspective and just experiences that I think that Louisiana really needs to be able to push us along in this fight. And I'm just very grateful to have you here. Oh, so do you, Queen. Can't wait to work <laughs> with you further on this. Yes. It's not like we see each other every day. No. We totally do. <laughs> <laughs> Um, awesome. Well, I think that wraps us up to the uh, the next segment that I want to hit here. So now that you know a little bit more about us and what our goals are in starting this discussion with our listeners, um, we'd like to introduce you to something that we do at the end of each podcast, calls to action, or better yet, since we are Climate Pelicans, call calls, calls to, to action. action. <laughs> <laughs> I love it too. So we know, as people of Louisiana, we know that it's tough to navigate the myriad of environmental issues that are facing Louisiana and how those dovetail with social justice issues, community organizing, plus policy decisions and implementation. It can honestly be easy to think to yourself, it's too much. How can I do anything? Well, that's what we're here for. So at the end of each episode, we'd like to describe an action item for listeners to participate in if y'all wish. You can find them in the show notes later, write them down, or simply use them as a conversation starter. Um, And in the face of the climate crisis that we need to overcome, we find that taking action, no matter how small, is so valuable, especially if we do it all collectively. Awesome. So the one action that somebody listening to this podcast can do to help work toward a more just and sustainable future, um, you're going to get a couple of freebies here. We're going to have more challenging ones in the future. But first one is to follow us on social media. You can stay updated to what we're up to and how you can get involved. So follow our socials at Climate Pelicans. That's all lowercase at Climate Pelicans on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, and another way you can get involved is signing up for our mailing list. Um, So if you want to keep your ear to the ground on what Climate Pelicans is up to, sign up for our mailing list to hear about upcoming events, read our newsletters that we post, and so that you never miss a new podcast episode. Amazing. Well, thank you for joining us for our first episode, everyone. Yes, thank you so much. Bye. (laughs)